How was everybody's Thanksgiving? You're like, does he really mean to answer? Yeah. I mean, did everybody have an okay Thanksgiving? You survived seeing your families? Yeah. Do you, anybody enjoy seeing their family? Yeah. Seeing your grandkids? Good. We, we went to Madeira for the day and spent time at four different homes in one day. We drove there at 11 in the morning and got home 11 at night and went to four different houses in the meantime. So we were, we were glad to be home, that's for sure. But it was enjoyable. It was really good. Um, my name is Chris, for those of you that I haven't met yet. And we're really happy to have you. We've got some visitors here that took advantage of a chance to come out to the coast. So welcome. And yeah, we're really happy to have you. And we have some regulars that, yeah, I'm surprised made it this morning in light of everything. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be a good morning, a good, a good um, drizzly, rainy, wet morning. So here's what we're going to do. Well, I'm going to pray, and then I'll tell you why this morning is going to be a little different than normal. Because we're ending a series, and so we're going to kind of do a view from a 30,000 feet type thing. Do a little bit of recap, and then I'm going to add some thoughts to the end of it, and we're going to transition us. So let's, let me pray for our, the rest of our morning real fast. Yeah, Jesus, we are captivated more and more every day by your brilliance, by your beauty. May that be the case today as well. Holy Spirit, you are so good at and so passionate about revealing Jesus in us and to us and through us. Continue your work this morning. May we just simply carve out the space to be encountered by you, Jesus. May we not come with unrealistic expectations or things that would weigh us down, but would we simply open our hearts to say, Jesus, what do you want to say to us today? Show us more of who you are. Yeah, we want to meet with you, and we, we give you, that's not true. You already have it. We acknowledge that you have the authority to make that look exactly how you want it to look, and so we lay down our expectations right now, and say, come and speak to us, meet with us. Yeah. We don't want to be just a, a club that gets together to have some coffee and see familiar faces. We want to be an outpost of your kingdom in this place. So energize us and encourage us and equip us more for that this morning through relationship and encounter with you. Yeah, I think the thing that's really on my heart as I've been... Let me give you some context as to kind of where my head's at today or just what my day looked like yesterday might be helpful. If you're, yeah, if I seem a little scattered, I feel okay. But um, I spent about nine hours in the car yesterday driving down to LAX and back. Um, we left at five in the morning and got home at seven or something like that, picking up some friends of ours from China. They, it's a family of seven. They're not here this morning because the kids were up at 1.30 in the morning, so they're sleeping right now. But it was kind of funny. We, we were part of the same community with them for years and years in China, 
they just finalized their adoption of their Chinese daughter a few days ago. And so they've, they've been through a lot. They, have, they were fostering her for about three and a half, maybe four years or so, and just finalized the adoption, left their home of six years, and are moving back to America all within the span of about three days. So when you get to meet them, you will get to meet them. If they seem a little um, thunderstruck or disequilibriized, I know that's not a word, but if they seem a little, they seem a little off kilter, just imagine trying to process one of those things, much less all three. So anyways, we're, we're in the midst of that. Um, hopefully you'll get a chance next week if you're around to hear a little bit of their story. It was just fun though. I, I was thinking somebody should follow them around and make a documentary of their re-engagement with American culture. You guys know about that, don't you? We, uh, we were at In-N-Out Burger yesterday, and the husband walks up, and out of his mouth, he starts to order, and he, he, he's feeling really anxious. He, he's fine with me telling you all this, I hope. Um, he was super nervous to start ordering an In-N-Out Burger, because in China, you just do it way differently. And Finally, he gets up there and he starts to order and, and Chinese comes out and then he has to like stop himself and, and transition and start speaking English and so he's feeling all kind of off and then anyways, he's, yeah, I won't tell you more details, but little things like the fact that you can put the toilet paper in the toilet when you flush and things like that, it just, everything kind of throws you off. So it's, it'd be fun to just follow them around with a, with a video camera and kind of, yeah, make a documentary of their adjustment. So you'll get to hear from them and meet them. Wonderful family. We have them in our home for about eight or nine days. So if at some point we call some of you and we're like, hey, invite us over. Because <laughs> we need, no, it'll be fun. But five kids, all right? Think about that. So we're going to have 12 people in our two-bedroom house for the next <laughs> week and some change. So some of, we might be like, hey, uh, we're coming over. Um, but it's going to be really fun. It's going to be a blast. So that's where our head is at. So coming back to our series, Brilliance and Beauty, I wanted to take some time and just kind of give us a little overview of where we've gone. This is what I realized. So I'm the one that gave most of these talks. <laughs> Bree gave one. Apart from that, I gave most of these talks. And you know what I realized? I don't even remember some of the things I talked about. So how on earth would I expect you all to remember <laughs> some of the things I've talked about? So I thought, why not take some time and actually look back? Is that all right? So for you that are visiting, you might be thinking, oh, so we just get like a, a review time? But no, you get to be brought into the last two months of conversation that we've been having as a Coastlands family. And then there'll be a little bit of uh, extra stuff on top. But it's been really, really fun for me. And I've actually, yeah, there's a lot that Jesus has been showing me about himself. The heart behind this, the reason that I wanted to dive into this was because that I realized for most of my life, Jesus was somebody that had done something that affects me theologically or, you know, you learn about it in Sunday school, but, but it's been sinking in deeper and deeper that Jesus is so much more than what he's done for us. I mean, how many of you guys like to just be simply valued for, for what you do? That's, that's good, that's healthy, but don't we want to be valued for who we are? just for our personhood. And so I thought, why don't we take some time and say, what is Jesus actually like as a person? Aside from theology and history and what he's done, what is his personality like? How do we encounter him as a person in three dimension with texture and emotions and a sense of humor? Can you imagine that? If you would have told me a few years ago that Jesus had a sense of humor, even a personality, I would have been like, sure, whatever. I would have known that that was right because it makes sense. But from my experience, I would have been like, yeah, whatever. Anybody else? 
Like the fact that the author of personality actually has one himself was a foreign concept to me for a while. Isn't that scary? Kind of a weird thing to think about. So what we've been doing is over the last couple months just saying, Jesus, show us who you are. Show us your brilliance and show us your beauty. So we started with um, Matthew chapter 11. And we talked about how John the Baptist was criticized by the Pharisees for being this weirdo guy that lives out in the country eating locusts and honey and he doesn't drink alcohol and he fasts all the time and they're like, this guy is just crazy. And then on the other side, Jesus is criticized for being the life of the party. They call him a drunkard and a glutton. And this reality that Jesus was so good at ducking out from underneath the expectations of the people around him. He was so clear about who he was that he said, you know what? All of you have your expectations of what somebody truly connected to God looks like, but I'm not going to submit myself to that. This is who I am. Now, I don't know about you all, but I have a lot to learn in that department. Anybody else? Learn some lessons from Jesus and learning how to actually truly live out of your deepest self? Yeah, that would be nice. So that's what Jesus does. And I, the reality that if he was considered or accused of being a drunkard and a glutton, what does that mean? I'll let you fill in the blanks for yourself. <laughs> he probably once had a drink or two. He maybe even liked to party. How many of you guys, if you had a party and then Jesus showed up, you would feel really awkward. And yet, Matthew 11 tells us that everywhere Jesus goes is a party. Isn't that so? I don't know. It's been detoxing for me of my last few, uh, last years of, of what Jesus is like. So I'm going to move through these a little more quickly. But yeah, so next we had, we talked about, sorry about that, uh, the lighting there, but Matthew 5, this was a fun one. We talked about this whole thing Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek with the right hand, turn the other cheek. And we, we turn that into a lesson in passivity. And we tell our kids, hey, if a bully picks on you, just turn the other cheek. Don't fight back. And then we had the other story in there was um, go the extra mile, right? If someone asks you to carry their, their pack, don't go with them just one mile. Go with them two. And then the third one was if somebody wants to sue you for your cloak, give them your tunic also, or something. I don't remember the, which one goes underneath and which one's on top, but we have these pictures basically of Jesus saying, of turning the tables and saying, no, you don't fight back in the way that they expect you to fight back, but you also don't just demean yourself. Don't make yourself a doormat. So we talked about how Roman soldiers, just a quick thing, Roman soldiers by law from their generals could only force a Jew to carry their pack for one mile. Once they, got, once they started going into that second mile, they would get in trouble from their authorities. And so Jesus is saying, look it, don't oppress them in the same way they oppress you, but turn the tables and maintain your dignity. And then this whole idea of in the courtroom, the last one is a scene in the courtroom, and Jesus says, if somebody's taking your cloak, you probably don't have much else to give, right? So it's this broken system where somebody is, is literally suing someone for the shirt off their back. That's all they have to give. And Jesus says, just strip down naked in the courtroom, because in the Jewish culture, it wasn't the person that was naked upon whom the shame fell. It was the people that saw and witnessed and were exposed to the nakedness upon whom the shame fell. Jesus says, strip down naked and expose the brokenness of the system that would actually allow you to sue somebody that all they have is the shirt on their back. 
Isn't that cool? There's a lot more to that, but that's just kind of a nutshell version of it. Um, I, I like to summarize it this way. I, I just, it makes me think, sometimes we feel like we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And it's like, well, what is it? Is it A or B? Do we do this or we do that? And Jesus says, yes, no, neither. Watch this. And he carves a third way through. And it reminded me of Joshua when, I think I might have told you guys this story, but my nine-year-old son, a few years back, it was snowing where we were. And, and he's like, Daddy, you know that no snowflakes are ever the same? And I was like, that's cool, bud, huh? What does that make you think about the person that created every unique snowflake? And he goes, Jesus never runs out of options. I'm going to write that down. And I did. And so Matthew 5 is a way Jesus is showing us that he never runs out of options. That he says, hey, there's a third way. There's always a creative way through a rock and a hard place. The next one, we talked about the woman caught in adultery. And how often we as humans, we, she's this woman that's, that's thrown into this situation with accusations swirling all around her. And we can relate to that, right? We talked about how often we have accusations swirling towards us and often they come from within our own minds. And often we project those accusations and assume they're coming from God. You aren't like this. Why aren't you more like this? Why are you so like this? But we listened to the voice of Jesus within the situation and it was not a voice of accusation. It was a voice of tenderness and of freedom. He transformed her through tenderness. It's that whole, we talked about the balance of you have sloppy grace on one side and and legalism on the other. And it's like, well, we kind of bounce back and forth between the two, right? If you talk too much about grace, then you're going to get out of control, right? But if you talk too much about legalism, you're burdened. What's the way in between? And Jesus showed this woman the way in between. It was through tenderness that led to transformation of her heart so that she became the type of person that was more interested in following life than choosing death. It wasn't sloppy grace or legalism. It was this way through and way in between. It's so tender and so beautiful. And by the way, he's sitting there writing things in the sand, and there was a lot going on there, but to me, it's like Jesus is making art in the midst of our junk, and he heals us, and he redeems everything that we do, even some of the worst things we do. Um, Next, we talked about, yeah, Jesus revealing his glory. It says in the Gospel of John, it says that that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. And then in John 13, John says that Jesus had been glorified. And what happened right before that was Jesus, the creator of the world, stooped down, took his outer garments off, put on a towel, almost like an apron, and gets at the feet of his disciples and washes the grime off of their feet. And we talked about how Jesus, we talk about this, this idea of God being all-powerful. and God can do anything. God is sovereign and omnipotent. And those are great concepts. But what Jesus does for us in John 13 is he fills those with new meaning. And he says that God's power expresses itself through servanthood, through humility. If you want to know what God's power and God's glory look like, it looks like it looks like washing feet. Jesus learned how to wash feet from where? From his Father. The Son only does what he sees the Father doing. He does nothing by himself. Jesus said, my dad is the kind of dad that washes feet. Let me show you what he's like. That kind of scrambles our idea of omnipotence, doesn't it? But God, you can do anything. And he says, yeah, I can. And he cleans the grime between our toes. We couldn't create a God like this, could we? We couldn't invent a God this beautiful. 
Next we have, whoa, yeah, that's a hot mess. That's, <laughs> we, yeah, I need to lean more on our graphics person. Um, yeah, this is supposed to say John chapter 5 and 9. This was a fun one. If any of you remember, this is when we had our visitor, our first-time visitor come up, and I put mud in his face. Um, he wasn't really a first-time visitor, but this, these two scenes where Jesus heals this paralytic, this man that's sitting by this pool, that's the pools of Bethesda. In John chapter 5, this man for 38 years is sitting in front of these pools, and there's nobody around to carry him into the pool so that he can get healed. Nobody cares enough about him to even help him out for 38 years. And then so Jesus, in a very provocative way, heals the man, but not only does he heal him, he says, on the Sabbath, pick up your mat and walk. And all of a sudden, literally all, heck, okay, come on, all hell breaks loose because on the Sabbath, he told this man to pick up his mat and walk. And everybody, all of a sudden, this society that nobody cared about this guy for 38 years, all of a sudden, every eye is on him. And Jesus says, do you see how broken you are? That this man has no compassion from you. And now as soon as he picks up his mat and he's healed, you don't even care about the fact that I made him whole. All you care about is the fact that you think he's breaking your rules. And then in John chapter 9, we have the scene of this blind man and Jesus spits in the mud. And he makes mud and puts it on the guy's eyes. And you're like, now that's just weird. And that kinda, that's why some of us don't want to pray for healing for people. Because we're like, what is God going to make me do? Right? But it's because in their time, basically to spit in the mud was a, it was a violation of the Sabbath. To spit in the dirt would be considered tilling the soil. If the spit dropped and rolled over, it was considered tilling the soil on the Sabbath. And so Jesus says, yeah, watch this. Right? And he puts this mud on this guy's face. And once again, everybody's eyes are on this blind man. And Jesus says, you want to know about true blindness? It's you guys that think that this is the stuff that matters and you're okay with this man remaining in his brokenness. So Jesus just, he was a troublemaker. But in the most loving way, right, Torah? <laughs> Jesus was the most loving troublemaker. He was mischievous. He was provocative. Uh, what was the next one we talked about? Maybe we'll be able to read it. Yeah. So Mark chapter 6, we talked about Jesus sleeping in the midst of this storm. Any of you fishermen, any of you ever go out on the ocean ever? Anybody ever been on the ocean in a storm? Yeah. Can you imagine just being in the storm? So these fishermen, Jesus' disciples were fishermen, and they were freaking out, yelling that they're going to die. It's that level of storm. And Jesus is asleep on the boat. And he wakes up, and he tells the waves, it's quiet time. Shush. And the waves listen, and the wind listens. And so I read something from a, yeah, a South American theologian that basically talked about how maybe Jesus doesn't literally physically calm the storm in the same way, but how Jesus gives us the potential and capacity to build boats that can weather the storm, and he gives us the internal capacity to weather the storms. He says, I might not calm the storm in the same way, but I will set out with you in the midst of it regardless. Yeah, that was a fun one that was too hard to kind of summarize. But. And I think we just have one or two more. Yeah. John 11, the story of Lazarus. One of, it says multiple times about Lazarus in the, the Gospel of John. It says, Lazarus, the one whom Jesus loved. 
and Mary and Martha, his sisters, and in this town called Bethany that Jesus loved. And we have this scene where Lazarus dies. Jesus waits, basically takes four days for Jesus to get back there, and they're so disappointed with him. If you would have come, Martha says, right? Oh, we forgot to talk about Mary and Martha, but if you would have come, Martha says to him, this wouldn't have happened. In other words, why didn't you show up, God? Which is, she's the first person and only person to ever ask that question, right? Why didn't you show up, God, like I expected? And then Mary comes out and she falls at Jesus' feet and she begins to weep. She's sobbing at Jesus' feet. And the creator of the universe looks down at her and begins to weep himself. It's this just incredibly moving story of the compassion and the tenderness of God that actually feels and sits with us in our brokenness. I quoted my friend Paul who said, Jesus did not weep because he was human, but we humans weep because we are made in the image of God. And do we have one more? And finally, there it is again, another hot mess. Um, Somebody should teach me about contrast in design. John chapter 2. It says, Jesus empties the temple and fills it with himself. And we talked about how John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana and the cleansing of the temple maybe give us a key. Maybe they help us make sense of each other. You remember that when Jesus was at the wedding in Cana in John chapter 2, he didn't refill the wine jars with water and have them filled with wine. There were these old Jewish jars that were used for purification rituals. Jesus said, take those and fill them with water. And then he takes them and fills them with new life, with wine, which is what that would have symbolized to them. And then, very next scene, Jesus goes into the temple, which symbolized the very hub, the very center of their relationship with God, their whole entire religious life. And Jesus boots everybody out. He tells everybody to get out. The only thing, the only one left standing in the midst of the temple is himself. He fills the jars with wine. He fills the temple with himself. He takes the old and fills it with the new. And he insists on giving us his life. And that's what he's showing us in the temple. Um, I think that's the last one, isn't it? Yeah. We also, I forgot to put in here, but we talked for a minute about Mary and Martha and the whole scene of um, Martha running around serving and Mary sitting at Jesus' feet and how utterly unacceptable it would have been for Jesus to allow a woman to sit at his feet as a disciple. And how Martha comes and she actually, imagine this, Martha comes and she scolds Jesus. She reprimands Jesus. She says something to Mary, like, quit being so scandalous. You're not supposed to be doing that. And she actually says to Jesus, why are you letting her do that? Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're missing the point. And he allows this woman and actually empowers this woman to be his disciple. And that was just absolutely not okay in his culture. But did Jesus care? No. Sometimes we wish Jesus would care a little more, huh? Because does Jesus' confidence ever, ever unsettle you? Is Jesus' wildness or, yeah, that's, a, that's another route. We won't go there. But what I wanted to do is I just, I wanted to share a couple of things that 
Anybody like books? Anybody ever read a book here? Okay. So a couple of you have read a book before. No. So I, I'm a big fan of resources, so I wanted to give you guys a couple resources that um, you might find either fun, helpful, or maybe hopefully not a waste of time. But um, So there's a book called My Imaginary Jesus by a guy whose name I'm not going to try to pronounce. But it's a pretty silly read, I'll be honest with you. So if you're into something scholarly and want something rich with depth and texture and footnotes, not it. But if you want to kind of be challenged by some of the silly ways sometimes we understand Jesus, this will do it. It's called My Imaginary Jesus. Um, especially for our, our youth, this is a good a book to check out. Um, next, any John Eldridge appreciators here? Yeah, so this book, A Beautiful Outlaw, this is one of the first books that helped me see, wow, Jesus actually, you know, this is something that John Eldridge brought out from this book. Imagine how much it would change our reading of the Gospels if you actually picture Jesus with a smile on his face when he's doing some things. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, is it possible that there's... Could Jesus in some of these... I mean, think about the gospel stories that just perplex you. Like, did Jesus really say that? I mean, how many times have you had that with someone else that's speaking from the front? And you're like, did they really just say that? What is usually at work there if you have that question? It's this S word that a lot of us don't like, but sarcasm, right? If somebody says something and you're like, whoa, did that really just come out of their mouth? Hopefully, there's some sarcasm at play there. Hopefully, they're not being fully, completely serious. Is it possible that Jesus was sarcastic? And do you think that if we actually made room for that option, we would have trouble with a lot less scripture? Now, it might give us trouble in other areas because we have a sarcastic God, but you're like, wait, even that, what do, you, what do you do with that? But, for example, remember that scene when, this is one that John Eldridge brings out, Matthew 15, when there's this woman that's, she's a Canaanite woman, which Jesus, as a Jew, would not be talking to a woman in general, but specifically would not be talking to a, a Canaanite woman. That's like just way out of bounds. And she, she comes and says, Jesus, will you, Lord, will you heal my daughter? And he's silent for a little while, and then he finally responds, and he, he basically implies that she's a dog. He, he kind of indirectly calls her a dog. Do you remember that story? How many of you guys are like, uh, that's not what you want to get in a quiet time, right? You're like, Jesus, speak to me. He like, takes you to that passage. there's a lot of things going on there but is it possible I mean would you read that story different if you imagine Jesus with a little smirk on his face kind of being a little cheeky kind of like teasing or toying with her doesn't it change the dynamic a little bit it would wouldn't it it would take Jesus from being just ruthless and mean and a jerk to being playful because the woman wasn't thrown by it was she She's like, you're so mean. She runs off and like, no, she didn't. She rolls with it. So maybe Jesus is, yeah, she's like, I'll take the crumbs, right? She's being playful back with him. Is it okay for Jesus to be playful? And do we have space in our theology for a playful Jesus? I don't know. And last, for those of you that want something a little more robust, um, N.T. Wright can't really go wrong. Uh, a lot of his stuff. So, Simply Jesus by N.T. Wright. I'm thinking of Greg Fry right here. Um, and this is a, a distillation of three volumes of books that are 500 pages each. 
So um, I can tell you what those are if you're interested. But these, yeah, this is, this is good stuff right here. Simply Jesus. Gives us perspective about actually the, he does a good job of seeing Jesus as a historical figure, but also seeing the relevance for today and, and how that all comes together. Sometimes we get stuck between lodging Jesus in the first century or wanting too quickly to pull Jesus to today. You know what I mean? We want to just take everything and yank it into the 21st century. He does a good job of taking it keeping it in the first century and then appropriately pulling it forward, which is not an easy thing to do. So enough of that, right? A couple things moving forward, and I want to end with a story. All right? So what does it look like for us to continue as followers of Jesus to actually encounter Jesus as a person? That's a dialogue we could have. That's a, a conversation we could have. But I want to just share a few thoughts. What does it look like for us to actually get beyond Jesus as a theological construct or somebody that we have to believe in to not go to hell? What does it look like to get beyond Jesus as a historical figure and actually encounter the person of Jesus in our daily lives? We've all done that, I'm sure, to a certain extent, but what are some other ways we can do that? And one of the things that I thought of, I'll I'll tell you a quick story. I woke up one morning, this was about a year ago, I woke up one morning and I just did something silly. I said, Jesus, what do you, what do you have in store for me today? Do you, will you meet with me today? And I felt like he was like, yeah, I want to meet with you today. And I assumed that that meant a certain thing. And usually the place that I go to really connect with Jesus is this certain place over by Morrow Rock. And I'm not going to tell you where it is because if I tell you, then I'm never going to get access to it again because you're all going to steal it. But it's a really rad spot. So I go there, and every time I'm there, I just, I'm encountered by Jesus. So I just assumed that's what it was going to be like. So it turned out that I had some errands to run on this day, so I find myself in slow, and, and I'll spare you the details, but I find myself having lunch with a homeless man and hearing his story and sharing my story with him. And then I get ready to kind of, and I'm still, the whole time I'm thinking about my encounter at the rock, I'm still thinking, all right, I've got to get out to the rock and, and meet with Jesus, and And as I was driving back, you'll never guess what Jesus said. (laughs) I just met with you. And I was like, whoa, what was that? No. (laughs) What just happened? No, but Jesus was like, "I, I told you I wanted to meet with you today. Did you see how? And I thought, wait a minute. That's actually scriptural, isn't it? And it made me think of this wonderful passage we all get really encouraged by, the sheep and the goats. We're like, yeah, that's, that's fun to read. Like, let's, let's have a little devotion on the sheep and the goats. But look at what Jesus says here. I think sometimes we, we kind of miss what's, what's really at the basis of this. Do we have it in there, Cam? Oh, yeah, sorry, you got to. He's so good. He's just like switching computers back and forth. But sheep and the goats. In Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about these sheep and these goats that are going to get separated. But he, he says, look it, you did all these things for me. Like the... The sheep are surprised that they're finding themselves accepted by God. Have you noticed that? Jesus says, those of you, we'll we'll pull it up here. Listen to this. The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, what? We did? When did we do this? I don't even remember it. 
And he says, do we have it in there? Oh, I think we skipped the last part. But basically he says, any time that you did this for one of my children, you've done it to me. A.K.A., when we serve our brothers and sisters, and the least of these, we're actually encountering Jesus. We all know that, don't we? But do you think if we really got that, it would change the way we make some of our decisions? and change the way we view maybe the people on the streets or the people that ask us for help, if we saw that through serving them we were actually encountering Jesus and putting something into his hands or putting a smile on his face, it would change things for me. Um, One other, so just encountering Jesus through the people around us, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I would really encourage you to pray this prayer. Jesus, help me to see you in the relationships around me day to day. Have you ever prayed that? And you, you often aren't disappointed, are you? Maybe it'll be something your kids say or your kids do or, or a family or a friend, but it's often in the unexpected places that we say, Jesus, help me to see you in areas that I'm not used to seeing you before. And he's like, all right. I know for Sarah, can I... No? I was kidding. One of the things that I love about the season that she's in, I was like, so... So, wife, where is, where is Jesus meeting you today? Where are you, where are you finding life? And, and how is Jesus encountering you? And, and what was your answer? Through our baby boy. Jesus is revealing so much about his character and his heart to my wife through that nine-month-old. They can't even talk yet. You guys all get that, don't you? But I think sometimes, at least for me, I undervalue the reality of Jesus saying, look it, you are my hands and feet. You're my face. You are made in my image. You show other people what I'm like. And so I'm trying to just open my eyes. Jesus, how do I meet you and the people around me? I definitely see people differently, and I definitely try to treat people differently in light of that. Don't you? Um, I love having the little kiddos in here. Um, Okay, and then two more related thoughts, and then I'll, I'll land this. Digging into the Gospels, I would really encourage you, uh, I guess two facets of the same thing. When you read through the Gospels, uh, there is a temptation, at least for me, to really come to it, I've talked about this, to read it like an encyclopedia entry, or like a textbook, right? We, we often come to the Gospels, and when we read the Bible, what are we really looking for? Kind of not, don't give me the right answer, but give me like the... The honest answer. We're often looking for, yeah, to kind of like check our box to say, hey, God, did you notice? I was reading my Bible today, right? Check our box. Or to maybe find some principle of truth. Any of you? That we kind of, we come to the Bible and we're like, all right, tell me something I can learn. Teach me some kind of truth that I can apply to my life. Yeah, that's, that's good. But, yeah, but it's, it's, it is. It's kind of like a textbook. Give me something I can learn. But what if we came more to the Bible like we come to a biography? Why do you read a biography? To learn about the person about whom it's written, right? But aren't that, isn't that what the Gospels are? Yes, the Gospels are written to encourage us in our faith and to, to build community and to release us out into the world and show us our roots, but it's also a biography. It's just a, it's a story about a person, right? Doesn't the word bio, bios, come from life? It's the life of Jesus. It's the person of Jesus in the Gospels. So I would encourage you, if you've never done this, 
Pray this prayer. Jesus, as I read these stories, will you show me how you felt in these moments and what was going on in your mind? And I remember clearly, I'm going to show you, Cam, will you put up John chapter 5 real fast? Now this just hit me so hard one day. I, I prayed this prayer and I began to read this passage out loud to myself. And I was blown away at what happened. It says, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. But the testimony I have is greater than that of John, for the works the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me, saying, Pharisees, don't you know I come from this God you've been longing to see for so long? And the Father himself has borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, you've never seen his form, hint, hint, until now. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Now listen to this. Now I used to read this as if it was full of anger and frustration and disappointment. Listen to this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. How many of you, when you see that, you sense some anger in there? Like Jesus is just going off. Like he's just frustrated with him. Anybody? I think that's partially true, but can I tell you what happened when I was reading this out loud? My voice actually started to break and my eyes started to water because I was encountered by the sense of longing in Jesus' voice for his kids to see him as he is. I literally started crying spontaneously as I was reading this because I was overwhelmed with the longing in Jesus' heart for his kids to see him in truth. It was not frustration, it was not anger, it was brokenness and desire. And all of a sudden it was just, whoa, that just changed everything for me. And I, I thought about, imagine, so to tell you a little bit, maybe too much about my family. Some of you know that my little brother's in prison right now. He's been there for about two and a half years, for about the same time that I've been living here. He has a four-year-old son. My brother has another year and a half, two years in prison. He has not seen his son physically. They have not been in the same space for that time. And so it's going to be about five years after the whole time is over. Now imagine that Will, my nephew, gets reunited after five years with my brother. And Will doesn't recognize him. It's very realistic, isn't it, that that could happen? Isn't it very possible that that could happen? Now here's the question. Is my brother going to be angry at Will for not recognizing him? Will he be frustrated? Will he be broken? Would he be disappointed? But would it be based in anger? Or would it be based in longing? And it's a whole different thing, isn't it? And so I would really encourage you as you dig into the scriptures to say, Jesus, what is truly your heart in this? What are you feeling? What is going on here? And show me more about yourself through it. And that ties in with the next thing is just the same way that you read a novel. When you go to the Gospels, I would encourage you, imagine the smells, the sights, the sounds, the feelings, the facial expressions, the tone of voice, because it really does change things, doesn't it? Imagine... Even put a little sarcasm in there and see how it plays out. 
a little bit of playfulness. Put a smile on the face of Jesus sometimes and see if that better matches the rest of the story. But put some texture to it. Read it in three dimension. The Bible is understood a lot better if you come at it like a movie than if you come at it like an encyclopedia. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later, but I mean, that's, that's true just across the board. How many of you guys, when we go to the Bible, right, we look in Genesis, a great example is the story of the flood, and we're like, what's going on here? What is this teaching us, and what is God doing, right? We hone in on Genesis 6 and this gnarly story that we, you know, decorate our kids' rooms with and their cribs and stuff, and we don't really think that through. Sorry if you've done that, but, um, <laughs> but my point is, we, we hone in on this story and say, what are we supposed to learn from this, right? What's the lesson here in Genesis chapter 6 in the flood? We, ever, we do that, don't we? But when you watch a movie and the second scene comes up or the third scene comes up, how many of you just pause on that scene and try to analyze it and figure it out and pull the truth out of that scene? Do you do that? Why not? Because it's part of a bigger picture and the rest of the context explains what's going on there, Right? So I would encourage you to do the same with the Bible. What if you came to the Bible from like a cinema director instead of like an encyclopedia? Would it change the way you encounter Jesus? Would it, would it actually add some life to your Bible reading? Would anybody want to read the Bible? Maybe for the first time? I don't know, but just some things for us to think through. So I'm going to tell you a really theologically off story, okay? This is off the record, all right? So... Don't analyze this story for its theological accuracy because there is none. But listen for the point. Think of it as a parable, so to speak. You like that, how I just throw the parable word in there? I can now pretty much say anything I want now. Just pull the parable card. Um, so there were three, there were these three people, two men and a woman, and they're, they've just passed away, they've just died, and they're in this waiting room about to go into an interview on their way, hopefully, into heaven. How many of you guys are already thinking, like, okay, this is going to be a weird story. It's a parable. I can do what I want. No. So, so these two men and this woman, they're waiting in this waiting room, and they're getting called in one by one into this interview room. So somebody comes out and, and brings the first gentleman in, and they say, okay, so it's time for your interview. Come on in. So this gentleman, he comes in. He's pretty nervous because it's kind of a big deal. You can imagine. I mean, there's a little bit riding on this, so tiny bit nervous. So the, the, the interviewer sitting across the room, he says, have a seat right there. And so this man, he sits down, and, and the interviewer says, okay, just one simple question for you. One simple question. That is so adorable. Tell me everything you know about Jesus of Nazareth. That's the one question. How many of you guys have some facts rolling through your minds right now? Yeah? What would be some of the facts that this guy might have brought up? Come on, help me out. I really am asking you. Born in Bethlehem. That's a good one. He died for my sins. What else? Born of a virgin. One more. And he rose from the dead. And he's the son of God. So, so the guy rattles off some facts. And he's feeling pretty good about himself, right? Wouldn't you guys be? You're like, yeah, pretty good. And so the interviewer is like, okay, good, good. And he's, he's tracking with this. And he's like, thank you, okay, any, anything else? And, and the guy's like, uh, I mean, and he has a few, couple little things. But he's like, that, that's pretty much it. And the interviewer is kind of like, okay, all right, well, thank you. Thank you for your time. We'll let you know, right, something like that. And uh, so the guy goes away not knowing what's going to happen. And, and so the person comes out to the waiting room and calls the second guy in. And he says, all right, 
one question. Just tell me everything you know about Jesus. And this guy, not only did he go to Sunday school and go to church, but he actually spent some time in ministry. Yeah. So he had some more details. So what else would he have said? Add, what, what else would you add? If, you, if you're like a professional Christian, then, then what would you be able to add to your response? So we got the basics, right? Born in Bethlehem, right? Was it Bethlehem? Yeah. He was from Nazareth. He, was, he died on this hill called Golgotha. And what, but what would you add? What, what would you only know if you're a professional Christian? Come on. Where's our professional Christians? What's that? Yeah, he told some parables, right? What did you say? He fulfilled the law. Yeah. What else would you be saying? Yeah, he had a band of brothers that he traveled with, some disciples. Yeah. Anything else? He's a great teacher. Yeah, so this guy's like on a roll, right? He's like, I'm in my element, talking about Jesus. So the interviewer's like, okay, good, good. Anything else? And, and so he, he kind of rattles off, wraps off a few more things, and the interviewer's like, okay, thank you. All right, we'll, we'll let you know. And so the guy goes out, and, and finally it's, it's the woman, and somebody comes out and, and gets her and says, okay, ma'am, it's, it's your turn. Make your way on into the interview room. And they open the door for her, and the woman walks through the door, and she looks across the room, and she sees the person, and she drops to her knees, and she says, my Jesus, my Jesus, I've been longing to see your face. And the interviewer is just stunned because he's like, exactly. I think for the first couple decades of my life, I definitely would have been guy number one. <laughs> I think over the last few years after that, I would have been guy number two. I really, really, really hope that on that final day and that because of the choices I make and because of the longing in my heart and because of the things that I choose to do, that I will be person number three.